All right, well, we're in Judges chapter 16, and we are concluding our study of the 12th of 12 Judges. Uh, There are 12, and you go, wait, there's a couple more chapters. There are, and they're pretty brutal chapters. In fact, two sermons from now, I think, there's a PG-13 sermon that you're going to want to be careful about having some kids in here because it's just a brutal, brutal story and gives us a picture of what exactly happens in Israel after this 12th judge uh, ceases to, to live and men continue to lead themselves. So Samson, as we were talking about, this is a guy that was chosen by God to be devoted to God to fight the Philistines or to begin to fight the Philistines, the scripture says. But Samson doesn't act his part or at least not as we would expect. And so his devotion, if you will, if we read it, just seems very, it makes me uncomfortable, makes us uncomfortable. Like this is what a devoted guy looks like because some of the things he does are somewhat antithetical to what we would think maybe someone faithful would do. And most Christians, I think, most people who read the story um, kind of dismiss Samson relatively easily as this unfaithful man who gets what he deserves. And in doing so, I believe that most of us, and I include myself in this, ignore the fact that our own devotion to God works itself out in a very similar way. What I mean is, um, just like Samson, the Christian is called to be devoted to righteousness. And yet, we often find ourselves following our own sense of rightness. Just like Samson, the Christian is like this walking paradox a faithful servant devoted to God who still lusts, who still breaks laws, who still gets angry, and who still otherwise falls short. And most of all, just like Samson, I think we find that our efforts to fight sin apart from God ultimately will always fail. And they'll always result in our humility, or our humbling, maybe it's better said, and a plea for God to save us. And this is what we see in Samson. His downfall is triggered when he falls in love or he gives his heart over, as we talked about last week, to this woman or really to the world. And the world had pretended to love him, but the truth was the world hated Samson very much. It wanted him dead because this man who had been given by grace God's spirit was the kind of guy that could not be ignored. He ruffled a lot of feathers. He caused problems when the Spirit filled him and he acted on God's behalf. In fact, he had spent 20 years, 20 years of really ravaging the Philistine nation. And in that 20 years, he not only had killed thousands, he had disrupted their economy, he had mocked their gods, he had embarrassed their people and done all of that single-handedly, this one guy. And so, though the five lords really just wanted him dead, what they really wanted was to capture him and humiliate him in the way that they had been humiliated by this one guy. And so their chance to do that is when Samson turns from believing or trusting in the promises of God and begins to listen and believe in the promises of the world. And as a result, he really loses everything that set him apart, and he loses his strength that he had to fight. And the Philistines, as we saw last week, blind him, and they bind him, and they put him into bondage, 
at the site of his last victory at Gaza. Again, this humbling that they wanted to do to him. And they forced him to serve Dagon, their god, and they have him work in a mill grinding corn, which would be the historically the work of women. Which wouldn't be such a big humbling thing other than who Samson was, supposedly the men of man of men. And so for a man of Samson's power and reputation, this entire experience was designed to have a lifetime of humiliation. They were going to let him live a long time doing this, and that was worse than death. You die, you're killed, you can die a martyr, right? You die a hero, you die spinning a grinding wheel, blinded, you die pretty humiliated. And so again, whenever we read the Bible, whenever we read really big characters like Samson, we have to be very careful not just focusing on just what Samson does or what happens to Samson, and remember that this is God's story. This is just one chapter in a big story that's being told that climaxes in Jesus Christ. And so it's, what is God doing here? What is He doing? How is He unfolding His story and His plan? And so the truth is, if we want to really get down to it, Samson gets exactly what he deserves. Exactly what he deserves. Not because he broke the back of the Philistines, but because he broke devotion to God. That's why he gets what he deserves. This man was a Nazarite from the womb, right? Devoted, made a vow to God from the womb. His parents made sure he knew about it. He lived it out and he knew exactly what he was called to do. He was not supposed to, according to the vow, touch dead stuff. And what did he do? Goes and touches a lion and also the jaw of a mule. Broke that part of the vow. He was told not to drink, and he throws a seven-day wedding party for himself. He is told not to cut his hair, and he gives it all up for a seductive woman. He did ultimately what he thought was right in his own eyes, and even though God is big enough to use his choices to accomplish his will, they were unfaithful choices. They were sinful choices. Samson denied his call. Samson abused his gifts. Samson disobeyed God, just like Israel had done. And this is the larger story that's going on. It ultimately points to our own faith. Israel had broke their covenant through unfaithfulness to God by simply ignoring what He had told them to do. And though Israel thinks that they see, they think, they know what's going on, they are blind, and they are actually enslaved, working for The Philistines, just as Samson is. And like Samson, if you just take like Samson's situation at the end of this story that we'll see here, it looks pretty hopeless. This is a picture of Israel, who is basically enslaved and bound and and eyes gouged out. That's a pretty hopeless situation. Samson is not going to get himself out of this. And it would only continue and be forever hopeless if God wasn't still faithful. The story is not about Samson, it's about God. And though Israel has done everything to disconnect themselves from their relationship with God, they have cut off everything that marked them as, quote, Christians. They have ceased to identify with everything that God has said you need to identify with 
as my people, God does not abandon them. And that's amazing. And I think if you're a parent, you might be able to understand that. You might be able to understand that as a child who rebels and I want, I want nothing to do with you, Dad. I want nothing to do with anything, with your family. I'm no longer. And how does the father feel? God has not abandoned him. We see it at the very end before we get in chapter 16. The very end, I'm sorry, the second half of 16 to 22, the verse I didn't read last week, says this. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Ah, there it is. There's the little hope. His hair began to grow. His eyes had been gouged out. His head had been shaved. He was in shackles. He was serving to God. He said, but his hair started to grow. You've got to wonder, like, why put that verse in there? Why does the writer put that verse? It seems so obscure. And I can't help but think it's God saying, look, you feel devastated. You feel defeated, and a lot of it is self-imposed. But God is not done with you. God is not done with you. Let's read in verse 23 and see what happens to Samson here. We see that Samson is not only blinded, but he's mocked. So we'll read what that looks like. Verse 23 says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked while Samson entertained. So in his pride... Samson played with the Philistines, and now the Philistines play with him. And they brought or bring him out of prison where he's grinding at the mill, and they set him up to entertain these five lords and these 3,000 men and women. And most likely, the temple they're in um, has two big pillars holding up the roof, and actually, most of the, and it probably has an open roof. And all the people actually are gathered probably on a garden area on top of the temple, and they can all see down onto Samson. It could be underneath as well, but there's multiple ways to understand it. But bottom line, there's a lot of people there. And he's not in there doing feats of strength because he has none. right? He's not telling clever riddles. The entertainment, most likely, is them walking Samson around and throwing stuff in front of him as he trips and falls, smacking him. You know, the strong man who mocked us and made fun of us and humiliated us, and look what we have done to him. And you can imagine seeing someone strong like that, God's chosen, and seeing them just played with like a toy, like a, like a little child, helpless to help himself. He was made a spectacle like an animal in the zoo. And they're poking at him. 
Samson is an object of shame. And the Bible says that pride comes before the fall, and Samson has fallen really, really hard. And as they humiliate Samson, as they mock him, they're praising their God, they're singing to their God, they're rejoicing, thanking their God for delivering their enemy. And of course, in the midst of all the revelry, as they probably drinking and you know cheering, they fail to see that his hair is getting a little bit longer. That should concern them, you'd think, but they're blinded to it, right? And it's noteworthy, I think, that they say absolutely nothing about having defeated Yahweh or Israel. They only talk about defeating Samson, which I think actually... I expect from them, but speaks perhaps essentially to who Samson was really devoted to. That might sound harsh, but you think about it. Samson did not proclaim Yahweh's name. Samson did not say, I am here as defender of Israel. Samson was about Samson. And when they defeat their... We have defeated Samson. Not Yahweh. Not his God. Not Israel. He didn't battle Philistines, I don't think, for the name of Yahweh, but for his own glory and his own name. And as Samson judged, or delivered, they call it judged in the Bible, he had, I think, in many ways, robbed God of his glory. And now the true judge, which in the Bible, the book of Judges specifically, God is the only one who's actually called judge. The true judge now has sentenced Samson and robbed him of his and humbled, he's now read, led around by a long boy, or a young boy, and he's asked, can I can you put my hand on the pillars? And you're like, hmm. Seems odd, but he has a plan. Verse 28 says this. Samson called to the Lord. And he said, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one, and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed, or bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death more than those whom he had killed during his life. And he killed a lot. This is the second prayer, if you remember, to God that Samson prays. Uh, The first time was at the end of chapter 15, and he prayed and cried out for life, for sustenance. And God answered that prayer. And the second time here, Samson cries out for death, and God answers that prayer too. And with all of his strength, as we see, he pushes these two pillars that support the whole temple, and it all comes crashing down, and everyone dies, including Samson. And this sacrificial suicide kills more Philistines in one quick moment than he had done in all 20 years combined. And some commentators commend Samson for his willingness to cry out to God, which is certainly commendable. And they begin to praise him. Look, he returned to devotion. I don't know. 
I don't think Samson is an innocent victim or martyr. In fact, I think he was pretty unwilling and a fairly sinful deliverer. Samson's death, I don't think, is actually very heroic, though it certainly kills the enemy. I think it was just as tragic as his life was. Here's why I think that. His prayer, if you listen and look at his prayer, his prayer reveals that his sacrifice is motivated by personal vengeance. By vengeance. Personal vengeance. God still uses his selfish intentions to accomplish his mission, though. But he doesn't cry to God for strength in order to fulfill his calling. Right? He doesn't cry out to Yahweh, come defend your name. Take back the glory you've been robbed of. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't cry out, Lord, help me to save Israel from these oppressors. Help me to restore the freedom that they have been, has been taken from them. He cries out in vengeance, asking God to punish the Philistines for robbing him of his sight. Which, to be honest, his sight was robbed because of sin. His own sin. Not because of the Philistines. But he wants revenge for those responsible. And without doubt, as I said, the Philistines are responsible literally for taking his eyes. But Samson is responsible for abandoning God, which made all of this possible. In other words, the Philistines deserve to die without question, and so does Samson. The death of Samson, God reveals himself as the true judge who punishes all sin, even the sin of his children. And as true sovereign, he can get it done. And I think it's, it's tempting to be sympathetic towards Samson and begin to believe that he doesn't deserve what he got. I mean, that's so brutal. For a guy that did like these events and these, these, these great acts of valor, I mean, that's, wow, it seems brutal. Eyes gouged and, and mocked and humiliated. And a guy that was devoted, I mean, it doesn't seem like he deserves this kind of death. And I would argue that he does. And I think in many ways it's a result not of just, I kind of remember when Cleese would in the Louis Forgiven said, it's not about deserve. Great movie. We've got to remember, I think Samson got exactly actually what he wanted. Everything he received resulted from God allowing him to have everything his flesh thought was right. And as a result, Samson finds himself bound and in bondage. and He naturally, I think, experiences what rebellion brings, weakness and defeat. And he naturally experiences what sin brings, which is humiliation and shame. And he naturally experiences what disobedience brings, death. And we see, quite frankly, that his humility, in that his humiliation, I should say, didn't change his attitude. Even in his prayer, he is still unfaithfully devoted to himself. And like, where are you going with all this? Is this just about beat up Samson day? No, it's about beat up us day. Does Samson get what, gets what he deserves? But I would also argue that Samson gets what we deserve. Which is a weird way to look at it. But I actually think Samson represents every sinner, each one of us. And left to ourselves, we will love the world. 
in rebellion and end up blind, bound, and in bondage to it. To our sin. And unless we turn from our sin, we will die in them because God simply says the wages of sin is death. And God is faithful to His promises to judge. But, God is also faithful to His promises to bless. God is merciful and He is gracious. And He, in fact, withholds what we deserve. And we see a picture of what we deserve in Samson. He withholds what we deserve and He gives us what we don't. There's the mercy and the grace. We ultimately, through faith in Christ, don't get what we deserve. That punishment that's due us. And yet by grace, we get more than we ever have earned or deserved. So even though mankind, even though you and I, cut off our devotion to God in whatever way that looked like for you, but at the heart of it was, I'm doing my own thing. I think I am right. I am the Lord of my life. Even though we have cut off all aspects of devotion to God, He did not abandon us. In fact, God pursued us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the true Samson to save us. He, Jesus Christ, is the only one who has ever lived and who will ever live who didn't deserve what Samson got. Everyone else does. Everyone. Jesus is the only one who didn't deserve it, and yet, He comes and takes it. Jesus comes to save people from their sin, from the inside out, if you will, and the death of Samson reveals exactly how it's accomplished. I've got 47 points to prove that. Just kidding, I only have seven, but that's how you set them up. You go, I got 47. They go, 47, seven. Oh, that's not bad, okay? But this is such a stark picture of Jesus, it's, it's mind boggling. Samson gives us his picture exactly what Jesus was like, and yet it was different. So check it out. Like Samson, Jesus was strong. The strongest. Unlike Samson, Jesus was meek. Samson possessed great strength, great wisdom, but he used it to serve himself. Jesus... The Son of God, God incarnate, possessed infinite strength, infinite wisdom. And what did He do? Used it for others. As God in flesh, Jesus was stronger than anyone or anything, but He didn't enter the world as a celebrity. He didn't wield His strength so as to control. He took the form of a sacrificial servant. Very different than Samson, yet the same. And throughout his time on earth, the Spirit of God empowered him, who Isaiah 53 calls an ordinary man. Someone would never look at and go, wow, that's really special. This ordinary, true, fleshly man to do extraordinary things. See, Samson never saved a single person because he did everything for himself. Notice he never saves a single person. And yet, Jesus, 
saved many because he never did anything for himself. Like Samson, Jesus was set apart from the womb. And yet, unlike Samson, Jesus remained perfectly devoted. Samson got what he deserved because he cut off his devotion. And even though he knew he was chosen, even though he knew he had a mission, even though he was called to serve God, he lived for himself. But Jesus worshipped God perfectly. Jesus was perfectly sinless, perfectly devoted to the will of God in every sense you can be. And though he was tempted in a very real way, just as Samson was, he was tempted to abandon his call. He was tempted to abuse his giftedness. He was tempted to seek for his own glory by Satan himself. He remained true. See, Samson abandoned his call and did what he thought was right. And Jesus remained devoted to God's will because he knew it was right and the only path to righteousness. And like Samson, Jesus entered into the world, right? He went into the dark places. But unlike Samson, Jesus ended for a different purpose, and that was to save it, to redeem it. Samson alone went into the Philistine world and he fought the Philistines alone because Israel refused to stand with God. So he was there fighting individually when no one else would. And though he was empowered by the Spirit, he went into the world, quite frankly, to make a name for himself. But Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, went in to make a name for God. Very different motivation. See, Samson loved the world. And he wanted to be like it. And Jesus, guess what? He also loved the world. John 3.16, great football verse, right? He also loved the world, but he wanted to change it and to make it like him. Very different. And like Samson, Jesus was betrayed for some coin by a close friend, a lot less than 15 million or whatever it was. But unlike Samson, he was not seduced. He was not captured. He was willing. What do I mean by that? Well, Samson was tricked. He was deceived. He was captured by the world. His, his own pride built this trap that he fell headfirst into. Guess what? Jesus was not caught. He was not caught by the enemy. He knew the hearts of men better than they knew themselves. He knew the betrayal before it even occurred. He washed the feet of the guy who was going to betray him. He delivered himself. Think about that, right? The Creator. Colossians 1 said He is the Creator, Sustainer, Reconciler of all things. God, the Son of God, delivered Himself, the Creator, up to His creation. His decision was not forced. He delivered Himself 
up to the enemy silently without resistance. See, Samson believed the promises of sin and became weak and was captured by the enemy. What did Jesus do? He believed and trusted in the promises of God and he crushed the enemy by becoming weak. Very different. And like Samson, Jesus was humiliated. And if you ever want to see, I think, the best portrayal of that, go watch just the humiliation part of the passion. It's very difficult for me to get through that without, and I'm not like, I'm not a crier. Well, you saw me almost cry with Mark and Cheryl, but no, typically, I'm pretty stalwart, right? You watch the passion, and I don't know how you can get through that. When you consider what's happening there, the humiliation, that, so as you picture Samson, right, blinded, getting made fun of and mocked, he's guilty. And you have Jesus, the Son of God, who could unleash it any second he wanted to. Innocent, sinless, having done nothing wrong. Delivers himself up to be shamed publicly. He was held up as a criminal and a rebel and a sinner, though he was none of those things. And just like Samson, he was humiliated if you read the gospel account, for entertainment. Remember when the Roman soldiers blindfolded him, smacked him and hit him and said, oh, who hit you? Prophesy. Tell us. Samson played the innocent victim, right? Taking vengeance on those who hurt him. What did Jesus do? He was, he was the innocent. He was a victim, if you will. But he entrusted himself to the judge. And what did he do? He forgave those who hurt him. There's a verse in 1 Peter that whenever I want to complain about being made fun of, mocked, abused, for whatever reason. Or I want to grasp onto that victim mentality and say, I don't deserve. I turn to 1 Peter 2.22, speaking of Jesus, who says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. And when He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He suffered. And the only person to suffer, right, in a complete wrong way, totally undeserved, had done nothing no matter how we cut it, and yet he suffered greatly. And he entrusted himself to the Lord in the midst of that. And instead of praying out and crying out as his last prayer, let them die who took my eyes, the last prayer of Jesus, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're the ones who are blind. And lastly, like Samson, Jesus died. But unlike Samson, he gave his life to save. 
not to kill. See, Samson's death was, no matter how you look at it, it was a revenge-fueled suicide. What had been in life taken from him, he wanted back. He wanted them to pay. His last act was not to save Israel by defeating the enemy. He was not concerned with his mission, only in punishing those who hurt him. And so he died killing sinners like himself. Jesus died with sinners, very much unlike him. Not between two pillars, but between two thieves. And Jesus did not die to punish sinners, but to take the punishment for sin. Samson's life had been taken from him, and he died to punish the world. And Jesus didn't have anything taken from him. He gave it all up willingly, and he died to bless the world. Jesus is the true Samson. Jesus dies as brutally as Samson does. Samson gets exactly what he deserves and exactly what we deserve. The difference is Jesus comes and says, I'll take it. So how are we, how are we supposed to respond to the story of Samson, right? Because I think many of us read it and go, all right, the hero who killed the bad guys in the end, sacrificially, there's Jesus. Well, Let's go a little bit deeper. You don't read Samson with pride going, at least I'm not that bad. I don't necessarily think we should read it with sorrow and go, oh, I feel so bad for him. And I don't think we should necessarily read it with indifference. But how about repentance? How about turning from devotion to ourselves and giving our life to Jesus? Why? Because you and I are Samson. And we don't want to admit it. What do you mean by that? I'm not strong and big. Let me tell you, you're prideful. You're rebellious. You have denied your Creator. You have loved yourself. You have given your heart to the world and you have believed the promises of sin and you are full of shame. And you think, we think we're strong, but we're weak. And we think you're right. You know you can see, but you're blind. And you think you are free, but you are, like Samson, in bondage. And you and I and everybody deserves the death for your refusal to honor your Lord. And there's only one way you can live. There's only one way you can be forgiven. Only one way you can be declared innocent. Only one way you can be made righteous. Only one way you can be freed from your sin forever. The only way you can be cleansed, the only way you can find purpose and hope and joy is for you to trust that Jesus didn't just die a really tragic death. Didn't just go, oh, what a horrible victim he was. That's such a sad deal. No, he died as your substitute for your sins, so that you could live. 
And even if you have rebelled, even if you have cut off everything that marked your devotion to God, He's not done with you. I see some hair growing. There, it is not hopeless. Just because you've remained unfaithful doesn't mean God has. And the beauty of it is the story doesn't end there. The last verse, it still points us to Jesus. I mean, it's just ridiculous the way God wrote this story. Verse 31, his brothers, Samson's brothers, and all his family came down and took him, his body, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Seriously! His family comes and buries him in a tomb. See, Jesus, when he died, some good brothers and friends came, and guess what they did with him? Laid him in a tomb. See, if we just stop at the death of Samson, the death of Jesus, that's only half the gospel. We'll all sit and go, oh, I pay for my sins, now what? What do I do? Jesus didn't stay in the tomb unlike Samson did. Samson never got up again. But Jesus, three days later, rose again, and he is alive right now. And Jesus doesn't just save us from our unrighteousness. By the resurrection, he saves us to righteousness. He saves us to live in ways that honor and delight the Lord. We go from slaves to sin to servants of Jesus, and we aren't serving Him or loving Him so that we can prove we're acceptable. He says, I've accepted you. I love you. Now, live. And our obedience is this loving response to all that He has done for us. And so by grace, He causes us, right? His Spirit dwells in us. He causes us to do what? Unlike Samson, to consider others more important than ourselves. That's the righteousness that starts coming out. Not, I memorized 15,000 verses and read the Bible. No, it changes us. I look at people differently. By grace, He causes us to begin to love His way, to love His Word, even when we go, God, I just don't know if that's right, but if Jesus said it, it must be. It must be the path to prosperity. It must be the path to joy. Even if it confounds my emotion, my intellect, and my experience, I know it's right. By grace, He causes us to love Him. Love Him in the world and pray for the world to love Him. And by grace, Jesus causes us to begin to go look at the promises of sin and go, that's just stupid. I'm not falling for that. And to gravitate and desire to live in the promises of God. And by grace, God protects us from a victim mentality that says, when I'm hurt by others, that's who I am. Because by grace, we are entrusting ourselves to the one who will judge all. The one who's given me a new identity. And by grace, he causes us to give our lives to his glory to bless others, even to the point of death. Why? Because when Jesus dies, and Jesus rises again, and you begin to trust in what He did, 
and look at what you did. It's like, they ain't going to make it. You're changed. And what begins to control you is not fear. It's not guilt. It's not shame. It's not a need to prove something. It's simply the love that God in Christ has for you. And so I'll close with this verse, one of my favorite verses, and the reason why we're preaching 1 Corinthians so I can get to 2 Corinthians, because I love 2 Corinthians so dang much. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controlling us. So as you come this morning to communion, know that as you come, this is not just a routine. And I think we're going to get to a point where we're going to have to change this up because you get, it's kind of like singing the same song over again. And you start doing it out of just kind of mental, you know, repetition. And you're like, what am I singing exactly? I'm not sure. And we do the same with communion. People come up. Okay, go. Let us not forget what's happening here. First of all, it's a family meal. We are taking communion together. So we are one body. I weep and you weep. I rejoice when you rejoice. We love and care for one another. And we find a shared identity, though we are very different. We got different quirky personalities, different you know, things that we love and hate. But ultimately, we have one shared thing, and that is our identity in Christ. And we come up and we make a confession. What is that? As you pick up that piece of bread, you are confessing that you know you deserve to die. That's only half the confession. You're also confessing that I live, not just survive, but I live in Christ who died for me. That I live, that I move, that I serve, that I praise, that I worship. Not just, okay, I survive. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. Okay? It is not only dying to ourselves, it's living through Christ in this world. We're all Samson, but luckily Jesus came and became that for us so that we didn't have to. Amen. Let's pray.